It was a little more than 11 years ago this week that the most powerful earthquake ever recorded in Japan struck off the country's eastern coast. The 9.0, 9.0 magnitude quake shifted the earth off its axis and triggered that tsunami, you remember, that went right across the island, killing more than 18,000 people right across that part of the island, the main island of Honshu, killing 18,000 and wiping entire towns off the map. Well, the Fukushima nuclear power plant was inundated by a giant wave, and it led to a nuclear meltdown as nuclear fuel in three of its reactors overheated and partly melted the cores. It's classified as a level seven event by the IAEA, the highest such event, and only the second one to meet that classification after Chernobyl. Well, yesterday, another quake hit the same area, 11 years almost to the week after the first one, a magnitude 7.4. It was, it shook. Um, People were killed for damaged homes, businesses, and infrastructure in Fukushima itself. The nearby nuclear plant is decommissioned. It suffered some damage, but nothing significant. But it continues to raise questions about the plant and how well it is protected from another disaster and the safety of another nuclear power plant not far away. Well, my next guest knows Fukushima Daiichi well. He went there in 2012 as part of a National Academy of Sciences National Research Council committee requested by the U.S. Congress to study the lessons learned from the Fukushima nuclear accident. And Naj Mishkati, professor of civil and environmental engineering and industrial and systems engineering at the University of Southern California's Viterbi School of Engineering, joins me now. Professor Mishkati, thank you so much for being here tonight. Thank you, Ben. Thanks for having me. I guess the obvious question is, when you hear about an earthquake around Fukushima now, what is your, rea- what is your immediate reaction? My immediate reaction uh, is just, I remember the, uh, the first one on March 11, 2011, the earthquake, and then 45 minutes after that, the tsunami. But right. of course, uh, and then the two nuclear plants, Fukushima, Daiichi, and Daini. Yeah. But of course, right now, the situation is different because those plants are not operational. However, the spent fuel pool on at those plants are still there. The reactors are shut down, but the spent fuel pool will still need to be cooled down. And again, the, the hearing earthquake and the danger of a tsunami makes me very worried. I was going to say, uh, because the decommissioning is happening, we know, at Daiichi, at Fukushima Daiichi, where the, the accident happened. Uh, but that is still a work in progress. Absolutely. That is still a work in progress and another big headache. The right. problem at Fukushima Daiichi is we had a power failure station blackout and then explosion that we had and a spent fuel pool problem and radiation release but there is also another big problem over there that we are facing, as you may have heard that on the news, that that uh, on-site storage for the cooling water, because this water that they use to cool those uh, uh, damaged reactors, they are radioactive, and that they, they store it on-site. But right. now they are running out of more storage on-site. They are trying to release that water to ocean. Right. the Pacific Ocean. And that has caused a lot of headache for some fishermen, for people in Japan, in, in, in Korea, and also in China that are raising hell. What about, what about us on the West Coast? You're in California. I'm in British Columbia. Is it any, does it pose any threat to us? <coughs> Sorry, there have been some traces of the Fukushima 
at the original radiation release, some traces of that in, in the West Coast of United States and in Canada. There is a scholar at Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute, uh, Dr. Kenneth Bresfeld. He has been monitoring that and he has been able to identify some traces of cesium and some other isotopes over here. How dangerous does the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear plant, even decommissioned or about or being in the process of decommissioned, being decommissioned, how dangerous does it remain today to the threat of earthquakes and tsunamis? I don't think Daini is very dangerous because they have had a cold shutdown of the reactors and right. they didn't have a damage to the... How about, how about Daiichi? Daiichi? The, the one that we all know, yeah. Daiichi still is in the, some sort of exclusion zone. When we went there, I had to put a Tyvek suit, <laughs> face mask, and then wrap it with the plastic because it's, there is a still contaminated area. They are trying to do a lot of environmental restoration and decontamination over there. Right. Um, I don't know about the level of uh, fuel contained material, which is still on Fukushima Daiichi soil, but we have those huge storage tanks of the contaminated water. If God forbids there is a big earthquake and a big tsunami and washes out all that contaminated or, or ruptures all that contaminated water tanks to the ocean, that could cause a big uh, dump into the ocean of contaminated water. Right. And clearly, it's no more protected from a tsunami today than it was in 2011, I don't believe, or at least a large tsunami, bigger than the one, uh, bigger than the seawall originally built to protect it. Yeah, I don't know if they have improved the seawall, the height of the seawall as a result of that or not, but uh, that is a good question. But I am worried if I hear again that there is a tsunami at Fukushima Daiichi because the plant, because of all these contaminated water storage are very vulnerable. So you were there ostensibly, I remember, to learn lessons, safety lessons from what happened uh, in 2011, 11 years ago this week. What did you walk away with? What did your group find were the lessons that needed to be learned from, from that disaster? One lesson that I learned that we have to always think about unthinkable. To think about unthinkable. That's my first lesson right. when I left Fukushima and is still today is ringing in my ears. Think about unthinkable and be prepared. And don't say, or oh, this is too low probability thing. It's not going to happen to me. No. Think about unthinkable and it could happen to you. When you look around now at the different nuclear power plants around the world, are you seeing enough of those lessons learned? I have to un say, unfortunately, no, I don't see enough of those. Not How the so? way that I, I like to see, at least. How so? Just not thinking about the unthinkable. Yeah, uh, many people, they revert back to complacency, complacency, and they say, oh, this happened in Japan, we are better, and the tsunami would not happen here. It's one chance in 100 million years. Those are all all visual thinking in my judgment. I'm speaking with Naj Mishkadi, a professor of civil and environmental engineering and industrial and systems engineering at the University of Southern California. We're talking about the earthquake in Fukushima or off Fukushima, uh, off Japan yesterday, uh, bringing up memories of the devastating earthquake and tsunami 
11 years ago this week that uh, led to a nuclear meltdown at the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant, one that we read about around the world, one they're still trying to deal with now. How likely are they to decommission that plant? And how, how successful do you think it will be in terms of, um, I know there's still a huge exclusion zone around there, 150,000 people are still not back uh, where they were the day before that, uh, that terrible day. The commissioning of the damaged reactor is not that easy because you need to use a specialized equipment and a specialized robots because of the contamination. And you know that high level of radiation affects the electronics of the robots and that. And that's, that's not an easy thing. The other thing is you need to find a place to take the, some of this highly radioactive material. That restoration of the region could be a little easier. You may need re- just to remove the topsoil and then, then agricultural activity and maybe people could go back to their homes and that by decontamination. That's why there have been many estimates for, for Fukushima uh, Daiichi. If you look at the case of the Chernobyl, because uh, uh, the, the, the commissioning or, or maybe the, the cleaning up the sarcophagus has not been that easy. European Bank of Reconstruction and Development spent 2.1 billion euro, 2.1 billion euro, and they put another sarcophagus on the top of another sarcophagus. This new one is called new safe com- confinement. See, because you cannot really reach inside to clean up that fuel contained material, which is like 200 tons of a radioactive material molten in a lava with cements and iron and that. I'm, I'm, it's interesting that you brought up Chernobyl, Professor Mishkadi, because I will ask you about that when we come back. I'm back with Naj Mishkadi, Professor of Civil and Environmental Engineering and Industrial and Systems Engineering at the University of Southern California. We've been talking about um, the earthquake in Japan yesterday that brought up reminders of that devastating earthquake 11 years ago, this week actually, that led to the tsunami that caused a nuclear, helped cause a nuclear meltdown at the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant, an event that I think many of us remember vividly. Um, We talked about Chernobyl as well, because I think that's another nuclear event of those of us of a certain age all remember equally vividly. Um, And now we have a war in Ukraine. And we've seen a lot of different things happening around Ukraine's nuclear power plants, including Chernobyl's. How worried are you still about what's unfolding in Ukraine these days, Professor Professor Mishkari? I'm very, very worried about uh, Ukraine because it has four operating nuclear power plants, plus the site of the Chernobyl, which was is the site of that devastating nuclear explosion of April 2686. I have also visited Chernobyl site in 1997. At that time when I visited, one of his four reactors, reactor number three, was still operational, and I spent two days in the control room of that reactor. The Chernobyl site does not have any operating reactor. That reactor number three, which was the last of the four, got shut down in 2000 year 2000, I guess. But this is important that we still have spent fuel pools from 30 years ago on the site of Chernobyl that they need 
people to pay attention to, and we still need circulation on that uh, uh, water circulation in that pool. But of course, the, what they call it, the, the heat load of that spent fuel in those pools are not as high as the uh, Fukushima, which was 11 years ago. Right. That's why if we lose electricity, which we lost to Chernobyl That's last right. two weeks ago, it's not as critical. We can survive. And uh, for 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 a two or three weeks, uh, Professor uh, Frank von Hippel at Princeton, he had an estimation that for 40 days, if we don't have electricity in those spent fuel pool, we are okay. We are not reaching well, the boiling point yeah. for 40 days. Just so but, listeners remember, this is because even though nuclear power plants produce electricity, you need to have other electricities to diesel generators to provide electricity to cool things down. Absolutely. If not, if not, this is when we run into problems. It's very ironic that nuclear power plants are there to generate electricity, but for cooling the reactors and cooling the spent fuel pool, we need off-site electricity. See, right. these, these are two different sources. And when we lose the off-site electricity, which is a bad situation, which we studied that color, it's called in my business, loss of off-site power. Right. Then we need to rely on this uh, finicky diesel generators. Right. Which, I remember in Fukushima, they were flooded. That's what happened. The they diesel were generators flooded. Were flooded the, and they, some so of they them, they, some of them, they get overheated. Some of them, they fail to turn on. And then they are gas guzzler. These are designed for running for only 24, 48 hours. That's what right. we, some cases we have fuel only for 24 hours on site. And so, they, yeah. So I, I guess what I mean, what you're saying is that these are very sensitive operations and for them to be in the middle of a war zone. And we saw attacks on Zaporizhia, the other major, the biggest one in Europe a few weeks ago or a week ago or so, that this is huge cause for concerns. What would you like to see done to make sure that this awful war in Ukraine doesn't also lead to some sort of nuclear incident? The, my ideal, my wish, my ideal wish is the sites around these four nuclear plants in Ukraine be declared by Russia as a no-conflict site, hopefully with the center of the plant and a radius of 30 to 40 kilometers, be considered as a no-flight zone, no-conflict zone. And the second thing is the employees, the operators of these nuclear plants, these four plants, these employees and operators as I saw in Chernobyl, as I saw in Fukushima, these operators are the first and last layer of defense of the society against a nuclear catastrophe. These operators are the first to detect an anomaly. They are there to stop the propagation of the incident. And when the incident happens, they are there for us, for the society, for humanity, to mitigate its effect, to prevent the propagation of that. And the second thing that I want to see is these employees, operators of uh, nuclear reactors in Ukraine, in these four nuclear reactors, them, their families and their management system and everything, they be given a total guarantee, safe guarantee that they would not be harmed, their family would not be harmed, and they can do their job. You would think that because Russia, be, being a neighbor of Ukraine, would be acutely aware, and certainly a country that also suffered after Chernobyl, 
that Russia would be acutely aware of the dangers of anything going wrong at one of Ukraine's nuclear power plants? I think Russia wants the control of these nuclear plants because they want to have the control of the switch. I think because of the safety, International Atomic Energy Agency could be, could organize, could convene an international monitoring group composed of Ukraine, Russia, and Belarusia, headed by IAEA, to come as the Director General Rafael Grossi has been pushing to come with an agreed framework. But I think this agreed framework needs to be uh, led by Belarus and with the help of Russia and Ukraine that declare these areas as a uh, safe zones, basically, for the nuclear operators and their families. Nash Mushkari, thank you so much for your time tonight and your insight into this. Thank you very much, Ben, for having me, and I enjoyed our conversation.